thank you for listening to another Hastings NAS podcast. We are so pleased that you have shown interest in listening to this podcast, and we pray that it is edifying and beneficial for you. You can watch us live every Sunday morning on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hastings NAS. And if you are so inclined, you can support the ministries of the church by going to HastingsNAS.org slash give. Hope you enjoy this sermon. Grace and peace. Invite the congregation to, to read with me from Isaiah 55 during this Lenten season. Our series is The Way Through, and we've been reading the Old Testament texts, most, mostly prophetic texts. And this Sunday is no different. Isaiah 55, uh, verses 1 through 9. This takes place at the end of the, uh, towards the end of a Babylonian captivity for the people of Israel. They are in exile, and the prophet Isaiah writes to those who have been in exile. He writes to them, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts! Come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which, that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. See, you shall call nations that do not know that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the written word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Fall semester 2001. I was a freshman in high school. It's a big year, right? Freshman in high school. New school, brand new school, and a big new school. Belleville Township High School East was the school that I attended. That's where I went to high school. And there was about eight different junior high feeder schools that fed into this one high school. Uh, and my freshman class was about 600 students. It was a big graduating class. Uh, and all the other classes were about the same size, about 600. There was, you know, about 2,500 students on the campus. And I was a very low man on a very large totem pole. But that first semester, I, <clears throat> you know, I was making friends, getting to know people. I, I wondered, and I asked my parents, I said, hey, there's a football game on Friday night. Do you care if I have some friends over after the game? And they were like, yeah, of course, bring some friends over. I was on the soccer team. I'd, you know, made some connections with some of the other players first semester. And, uh, and so I thought it'd be fun to go hang out with them after the game. I had been in uh, first act play, just a little play, and made some friends in the drama program on my soccer team. And so my parents agreed and said, yeah, have some friends come over after the football game. That's fine. Um, soccer teammates, come hang out. Uh, and I remember that game. It was a cross-town rivalry. You see, I went to Belleville East, and we were playing against Belleville West. And we were at Belleville West High School. So this was a cross-town rivalry. Everybody at that game was from Belleville. 
Belva West was about as big as Belva East, too. So it was packed. I mean, the stadium was full. A lot of people from Belleville in one place. You know how Acts says they were all together in one place and had everything in common. That's kind of what it was like at that football game. We, all of Belleville was together in one place. But something really strange started happening at that football game. I'll never forget this. Something really weird happened. It was about halftime. Uh, I remember going to the concession stand and getting nachos or flaming Hot Cheetos or something, whatever snack I wanted that day. Uh, but it was weird. I was walking around the stadium at halftime, and a bunch of people I didn't know started coming up to me and talking to me. I was a freshman. I'd been there, I don't know, a couple weeks. It wasn't that long that I'd been a student at Belleville East, and all of a sudden these, these people started coming up to me and talking to me about, about how excited they were for the party. The first few times it happened, I was, I was kind of stunned, not really processing what just happened, and then it hit me. I realized, oh my goodness, somehow word spread. Somehow word spread to my classmates, and apparently some of my non-classmates from the school across town, that this freshman was going to be hosting a party at his parents' house after the football game. And this was news to me. I have no clue how it happened. I mean, I know how it happened, but I don't know how it happened. I didn't tell anyone I was having a party. I invited maybe like 10 people, just a few of my friends. I don't know how the word got out, but somehow word spread that this freshman, this new kid on the block was throwing a huge party. An upperclassman came to me at one point and said, hey man, it's really cool you're throwing a party. And I said, oh, Thanks. Uh, it's not a party. Um, I'm just having some friends over, and and there won't be any alcohol. And I remember this this I don't know senior junior whatever this upperclassman said, "Oh, dude, you just lost so many friends," and walked away. And I, I'm I'm now at the football game. I'm freaking out. I'm I mean I'm beside myself. What am I supposed to do? All of a sudden, there are apparently going to be hundreds of people at my house. And we didn't have a huge house. And I didn't have a cell phone to call my parents and warn them. This was before I had any cell phone. So before the game ended, I convinced my ride, we got to go. I got to get to my house before all these people so I could give my parents a heads up. And we sped to the house, we got to the house, and I, and I sprinted to the house and I gave my dad a heads up and he kind of was really taken aback. He didn't know what was going on because I didn't know what was going on and what was about to happen at and to our house. And what's weird is I didn't give anybody our address. I didn't tell anybody where we lived, but somehow everyone found it. I think I was able to prevent enough people from overwhelming things, but after the game still, there was about 100 students that showed up at my house after the Crosstown Rivalry football game, and I knew almost none of them. And eventually they learned that this was a really bad party. (laughs) It did not take them long to find out that this party was lame. There was nothing to do. There was no food. There was no booze. There were two parents of, one was a pastor. Are you kidding me? They went to the pastor's house for this party expecting something to happen. They just... They eventually dispersed, and I had my little get-together with my friends, but it was chaotic, and 
I wasn't trying to rebel against anyone. I, I was just trying to have some friends over. I wasn't trying to go against my parents by having a big party, but that's what some of my classmates wanted it to be. That's what they wanted to turn it into, a party with underage drinking, a party with no parental supervision. They wanted to rebel a little bit. It's not what they could do in their everyday lives. It wasn't the way that their parents wanted them to act. For adolescents, partying can sometimes be rebellious, right? That's how we describe it. You're rebelling. And that was not my intent with my little get-together with my soccer friends and drama club friends. It's not what I had planned. But the fact that so many showed up expecting something else revealed to me just how much they wanted to push back, wanted to rebel, not at their house, mind you. Not with their money, mind you. Not at their expense, mind you. But partying can and often is a form of rebellion. I think that's kind of what's happening in Isaiah 55. Not like the party of my house, but at the time of Isaiah 55's writing, we know that the elites from Israel have been exiled into Babylon. Isaiah 55 is the end of a very important period in the life of Israel. And the leaders have been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon was a neighboring empire of Israel that had sacked Jerusalem. It had sacked Jerusalem and and captured many of their citizens. Without Seemingly without provocation, they invaded Israel. They invaded that land and sacked the capital city and stole its inhabitants. It's not unlike what we're seeing unfold right now with the Russian Federation and Ukraine, only instead of Ukrainians fleeing to, to Poland, where their children are being greeted with open arms and candy and, and uh, stuffed animals, the Israelites were not exported to a friendly neighborhood nation. They were exported to the nation that sacked their capital. They weren't taking, taken willingly. They weren't welcomed in Babylon with candy and stuffed animals. And during a 20-year period, Babylon, during a 20-year period, Babylon will go to Jerusalem multiple times and will deport multiple people. There are what we can see three separate deportation accounts in a 20-year period where people of Jerusalem are taken three separate times to Babylon, especially after the city was destroyed. So during a 20-year period, they are taking captive citizens of Israel, and then for the next 50 years, those Israelites will not only live in Babylon as foreigners, what happens over those 50 years to those Israelites in Babylon is that they start to adopt a Babylonian imagination. See, they're there for more than a generation. After a generation of captivity in Babylon, well, they have kids. And maybe some of those kids have kids. And those kids don't speak Hebrew as well as their parents did. No, they speak Babylonian. They don't eat the food of their grandparents. No, they eat the Babylonianized version of that dish. After a generation of captivity in Babylon, the Israelites take on the the values and the lifestyles of the Babylonians. Think of Daniel and his companions. You know the story of of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? 
That's what happened in Babylon. And you know what's amazing is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not Hebrew names. Do you know what type of names they are? They're Babylonian. You see, they had already taken on Babylonian names for themselves. The Hebrew captives took on the names of Babylonians. And we might say, oh, how dare they? What are they doing? Don't you remember you're an Israelite? Don't you remember you're, you're a Hebrew person? Don't you remember your Hebrew heritage? We might look on them with criticism and judgment, but it's really not that shocking. This is just kind of what happens with immigrant populations. It happens to these Israelites in Babylon, but it also happens today. Life is just a little bit easier if you can adapt to the dominant cultural realities. You see, immigrants in America today will anglicize their names. They will take their their foreign name and turn it into some uh, English version of it. Uh, Bruce Lee, that wasn't his name. He got famous by going by Bruce Lee, but his name, he was born Lee Jun Fan. And Jackie Chan, we all love Jackie Chan, right? I mean, he does his own stunts in his movies. He's amazing. Jackie Chan, uh, his Chinese name is Chan Kong Sang. He's not born Jackie Chan, but he anglicized his name to fit the dominant culture of America. Shoot, my own ancestors immigrated from Sweden, and when they immigrated, they couldn't get a job because their name wasn't American enough. And so Kvarnström, Swedish, yeah, Kvarnström was turned to Quantstrom because that's so much more American. Then they still couldn't get a job with the name Quantstrom, so they changed the name to Smith. They got a job. Then the next generation said, hey, let's go back to our Swedish roots, but not all the way back to our Swedish roots. Let's just go back to Quantstrom. So even my own family changed their name, but it's more than just a name for these Israelites. When they're taken captive into Babylon, their, their values begin to shift. Their ways and their thoughts begin to move a little bit. And that's Israel right now when Isaiah writes this. Jerusalem has been sacked and, far more than a gener- and for more than a generation, many of the Israelites have lived in Babylon and adopted Babylonian ways. Israel is eating Babylon- Babylon's food. Israel is working Babylon's jobs. Israel is thinking like Babylonians think. Despite being from Jerusalem, these Israelites had forgotten what made them Israelites. And they have now joined the Babylonian economy. They're participating, they're trading in the Babylonian exchange. Despite being from Jerusalem, these Israelites had forgotten what made them Israelites, and they had forgotten God's covenant with them. Maybe most egregious of all. And, and the text today tells us how they were becoming Babylonian. God reminds them of the covenant, but, but it begins by saying, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why are you spending money on anything other than food? What are you buying? What on earth could you be spending your money on if not food? See, apparently Babylon was kind of consumeristic. In Babylon, they wouldn't spend their money on good food. They would spend their money on all the things that shine, that glitter. In Babylon, you could have status. 
Because of the things you had, they wouldn't spend their money on good food. They'd spend it on other things. Why do you work jobs that, that, that do not satisfy? Why are you working a job? Why do you labor for that which leaves you empty? You see, they worked jobs not that brought purpose and direction and meaning and made the community whole and full. No, they worked jobs that gave them enough income to buy the things that would not fill them. Why are you spending money on something other than food? Why are you working a job that's leaving you empty inside? You see, they would work to make money not to make things that bring life. And they would spend money to get things not to bring life. The Israelites had become accustomed to the Babylonian consumerism. And they had become accustomed to Babylonian labor neither of which would fill and neither of which would satisfy. But I have to describe that in detail because that's very foreign to us, right? We don't resonate with any of that, right? It doesn't make any sense. Spending money on things other than food and working jobs, laboring in fields that aren't unsatisfying? It's not us. Surely not. Does that sound familiar, church? Does this consumeristic way of thinking resonate at all in our world? Does this meaningless labor resonate with any of the ways our world thinks about work? Shoot, we even have songs about it. Everybody's working for the weekend. Right? I work so I can quit. I work so I can stop working. I put my time in so I can retire so that I don't have to work anymore. I put my time in Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, so on Saturday and Sunday I can sleep. <laughs> We're working to stop working. We're working so that we can rest from our work, but in God's ways, in God's thoughts, in God's economy... You see, work is not something we get through. Work for God is not something we endure. Work for God is something we enjoy and we love because it satisfies. You see, in the economy of God, we work because it brings life to other people. Because it brings joy and peace and it makes our community fuller. So the Israelites may be physically captive in Babylon, but they have given over their thoughts and their ways to their way of thinking. They might have been captured, but they've given up their ways and their thoughts willingly. You see, but God tells them in Isaiah 55 through the prophet, I do not want you to lose yourselves completely to Babylon. Be aware of what's happening to you. And as Babylon's grip is loosening a bit because of the Persian army, God says, hey, here's an opportunity. I'm going to pull you back. I want to pull you out of the Babylonian ways and thoughts and return to my ways and thoughts. And do you know how God does this? Do you know how it is that God says, hey, you've been captive to Babylon. You've been captivated by Babylon. Do you know how God wants to pull them out of that captivity? By throwing a party. By throwing a party. Seriously, I'm not joking. When God writes, when God says through the prophet Isaiah, who wrote to the Israelites, 
God wants Israel to rebel against their Babylonian captors. God wants them to not give themselves over to the Babylonian ways and thoughts, but not how we might expect. You see, the ways in which God wants them to rebel are through celebration. God invites Israel to a celebration, and that celebration is necessarily Rebellious. Have you ever imagined that a celebration could be a form of rebellion? Maybe not like the rebellion of a teenager wanting to drink illegally at a vulnerable freshman's house whose dad is a pastor. Maybe not like the rebellion of spreading rumors of a party that doesn't exist. But the rebellion of an oppressive system. A rebellion against a, a, a way and thought that tells you you have to buy all the things. The rebellion of oppressive work that does not satisfy. Rebellion of ways and thoughts that don't bring life and don't bring wholeness. No, church, I want to tell you, I think that celebration might just be the best way to do that. I think what Isaiah tells us is that that celebration is the best way to push against the oppressive forces at work in our world. This might be a silly example, but... Have you seen the humor and the levity of the Ukrainian people right now as their country is being invaded? Have you seen the ways in which they are responding? It's been astounding to see Ukrainian leaders and citizens respond with levity and comedy in the face of such horror. So here's one example. I saw in a bunker a stand-up show. They were hosting stand-up comedy in a bunker in Ukraine. A Ukrainian comedian, they had about an hour-long stand-up comedy session for people who were hunkered down in a bunker. And did you know, do you know what the largest, the fifth largest uh, armored force is in the world? Ukrainian farmers make up the fifth largest armored division in the world. That's not a joke. Ukrainian farmers have captured with their tractors so many Russian tanks and vehicles that they're, that they're now the fifth largest armored division in the world. And what's hilarious is that they've been trying to sell them on eBay. <laughs> I saw a Russian tank for sale on eBay for $400,000. And have you heard about NFTs, these online non-fungible tokens? They're these, it's this weird economy that's developing that eventually will give, be given over to that Babylonian, Babylonian economy one day, who knows. But Ukrainian farmers who have captured these tractors have sold NFTs of them, a digital picture of it, and said, hey, you can have the physical thing, but you got to come and get it. President Zelensky said in 2019, I don't know if you know this, he was a comedian before he was president. He said, laughter is a weapon that is fatal to men of marble. And do you know one of the primary ways that slaves would rebel against their captors in chattel slavery? Yeah, there were some who literally rebelled, some who literally ran away, but But do you know one of the primary ways that those who were enslaved would rebel against their captors, against those who held them in bondage? They would sing. They would sing. 
They would sing songs of hope. They would sing songs of praise. They would sing songs of joy in the midst of their captivity. I believe it was Frederick Douglass who said after he had escaped the South, after he had been freed and and made his way up North and, and found that people were singing, he said, I don't know how you can sing from your place of joy. I can only sing from a place of sorrow. Song was rebellion against an oppressive system. Those Negro spirituals were originally songs of rebellion. Enslaved Americans would sing songs of hope in a hopeless situation. They would sing songs of a good future from the lynching tree. Perhaps the greatest rebellion that exists is joy. For captors want to take life and captors want to take joy. And when you celebrate You are fundamentally undermining the thing that an oppressive force wants to take. You can try to take my life. Guess what? We're going to party anyway. We're going to celebrate anyway because you don't control my future and you don't control my hope. You did not make an everlasting covenant with me. And this is what God is telling the Israelites to do. God is calling them to rebel against the oppression of Babylon. And he calls them to rebel through a meal, through a good meal. This is the table of rebellion, rebelling against the forces that don't bring life, rebelling against the systems that do not satisfy. But, but, mind you, this is not without sacrifice. Coming to this celebration is not without its own sacrifice. You see, God invites them to his table with good food that they did not pay for. God invites them to his table with wine and with milk, that which is uh, a lavish opportunity for them. God invites them to dine at a feast for which they did not labor. But that invitation means that they have to leave something behind. You see, the prophet says to the people, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Let the unrighteous forsake their thoughts. Leave behind the ways and the thoughts of Babylon. Come to my table. I've made it for you. You don't got to do anything to sit here. You are welcome, but you got to leave that behind. You cannot take Babylonian ways and thoughts to the table of my covenant. Come to the table of the Lord that will satisfy, but leave behind Babylon. Come to the table, but you leave behind that consumerism and that unsatisfying labor that does not fill you. One of the things that prevents us from coming to the table of the Lord is not the lack of an invitation, church. One of the things that prevents us from coming to the table of the Lord that is abundant and good and rich and freely available to you is not that God has not reached out to you and invited you. One of the things that prevents us from coming is that we are still clutching to the ways and the thoughts of Babylon. 
Babylon is a perennial image for covenant people. In the book of Revelation, chapter 18, another prophet says, Come out of her, Babylon! Come out of her! Stop sleeping with her! Dine with me! One of the things that prevents us from the covenant life that God has for you and for me is not that God does not invite us or it is not that God does not want us. It's that we don't like what we'd have to give up in order to go. So we really like the things that we're clinging to. What's amazing is we cling to things that do not satisfy. What's amazing is we cleave to careers that leave us empty and meaningless and full of anxiety. God says, I have a table for you. I've made everything. We got wine and milk. You don't got to pay for a thing. I have a life for you. I have ways and thoughts and an imagination for you if you would but leave behind that which does not fill and that which does not satisfy. But we don't. Often we're hesitant to leave behind the ways and thoughts of Babylon because we fear that God will be angry with us for having clutched Babylon so tightly. Sometimes we say, ah, I want to go, God, but uh, if I let go of this, that's admitting that I've been lesser and then you might be upset with me because that's the experience of you that I had in the church that I grew up in and because that's the way that my parents talked about faith was that, man, if I do this, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. So we cling to those things because we're afraid that God is going to meet us with judgment and condemnation. We think that because we have forgotten God's covenant and found ourselves in Babylon that God's going to be mad at us. But I want you to listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah again. He writes to the people captive in Babylon, let them return to the Lord that he might have mercy on them. And to our God, return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God says, leave behind Babylon, whatever your Babylon is, and come to me because I will have mercy on you. Come to me because I am eager to pardon you. I want to pardon you. I want to have mercy on you. God is yearning to offer mercy and grace to us. God is yearning, but we cannot receive God's grace when our hands are full of Babylonian work and Babylonian things and Babylonian imaginations. When we cling to it, we have no room. Church, I promise you, God is not eager to condemn you. I promise you, God is not eager to criticize or shame you for having found yourself captivated in Babylon. I promise you, God is eager to forgive. God is yearning to pardon. God wants to extend his mercy to you. So church, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Leave behind the work that does not satisfy. Stop living according to the Babylonian myth that things will fill you because they won't. And return to the Lord who is eager, eager to offer you grace and mercy and pardon and forgiveness. Return to the Lord who has a table for you. A table that will fill you and a table that will satisfy. This is the good news of God for the people 
of God.